Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Due to the length of the chapter, we are reading some selected portions of this. You can follow along carefully with us as it's printed there in the bulletin. And congratulations to all of you who are here. I know that the plague is generally uh, now uh, swarming around Jacksonville. And so if you've kept your health, kudos to you. Second Chronicles 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. And in verse 15, they gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord, to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook of Kidron. And verse 20. Then Hezekiah, the king, rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel." And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priest with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, 
The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah, the king, and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. Then closing with verses 35 and 36. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored, and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do cry out that you would restore us, that you would make your face shine, that we may be saved. And it is only in your light that we see light, and your word is the sum of all truth. And so we ask by your spirit that you would lead us and guide us and grant us understanding. Teach us what these things mean for us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During college, I was part of a network of friends that were spread somewhat around the the southeast, and we had no regular way of seeing each other, and then we were all looking for an excuse to do so. One of our friends was on a foreign study in Spain, and he had way too much time on his hands, and so he took the time to write a manifesto. This manifesto was concerning how we're all going to have a regular gathering. Now, to fully appreciate that manifesto, you must know what it is to be a child of the 1980s. The humor of Bill Murphy and Chevy Chase and Jerry Seinfeld was replete inside the manifesto. It was about the formulation, the establishment of a new fraternity. But this was to be no Greek fraternity. It was to be a Roman fraternity. It's going to have two chapters, the Alpha chapter and the Beta chapter, and we were going to have bylaws and officers and t-shirts, and then the quintessential event, one assembly each year for a formal. It was to be the Row, Row, Row fraternity, the first Roman fraternity, if you will. I know it's not incredibly funny. The formal was to be the life is but a dream formal. Melissa was actually my first date at this. This ran for several years. It was actually an enormous amount of fun for a group of guys who didn't get to see each other. We graduated, and then it became so popular that we passed the torch to a next generation. Who were to, they were to carry it on. Unfortunately, that generation did not do what was right in the eyes of the founders. They departed from the path of their fathers, and they did what was evil. We began hearing about these changes that they were making. Membership had expanded to several new campuses, and the annual formal had fallen into disrepair. It was no longer being hosted in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and that was part of the charter. So then a decade later, we received an email, proudly announcing that there were further changes to row, row, row. This was no longer the first Roman fraternity, but they had now renamed it that it was the first Ferrarity. 
They had gone co-ed. It was now expanding its membership to include men and women. Everything about the original foundation had been lost. It had all been scrapped and sacrificed. They'd gone off in a completely new direction, and predictably, it died. (laughs) Row, 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 no more. To borrow the words of Chinua Achebe, things fall apart, and things fell apart disastrously for row, row, row. And as we read through the book of 2 Chronicles, we see that this is the tendency inside of the church. Despite the great awakening work of God, the crisis that confronts us day by day, week by week, year over year, and from generation to generation, is the crisis of will the church continue? Will the church be faithful? Will the church answer the call of God? And we've seen that the awakening grace of God always manages to recover the church. But we've also seen that defection happens. Through our series as we work, we've seen two types of defection. There is a subtle defection where duplicity establishes itself in the church in the times where orthodoxy is being maintained. It's like under the reign of Uzziah who experienced such great success and blessing from God. But in the middle of that success, We learned in verse 16 last week of chapter 26 that he grew strong. His source of confidence and his security became his success rather than depending upon God. We've seen this defection. And then we've also seen another form of defection where there is a blatant defection that is far more monstrous. If you were to turn back to chapter 28, you would read of King Ahaz. And his defection from the Lord was brazen and blatant, in which he turns from the living God. He actually closes the temple. He takes the utensils of the temple and puts them in other services, and he installs shrines there. But then he completely scraps it. He closes the gate and shuts down the temple. He was out and out an idolater, flagrant apostasy. And one of the great challenges for us in the church is to be aware of both types of defection. Defection on the left and the right. The subtle move towards strength and pride, where we find our confidence in ourself, or the blatant and brazen move towards idolatry. That we have to be aware of both. Because God calls us to a living faith in which we abide in dependence upon him. And whether it's the subtle move or the brazen one, both deny the foundational charter of who we are to be as God's covenanted people, as those who have been redeemed in Jesus Christ, who have been brought up out of Egypt and the bondage of slavery and rescued by him. To go back from that living faith is to betray him. And so the question for us this morning is how does the church live within this tension This tension that we face where there is error on the left and error on the right, where we can move into self-confidence and personal strength, or we can move into out-and-out idolatry. In 2 Chronicles 29, there is one particular emphasis about what the church is to do in that situation. And it's simply this, that we are to be attentive to God's dwelling among us. 
In verses 1 and 2, you have the general commendation of Hezekiah as a king. We learned that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then in verse 3, we find the specific commendation of him. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now, this was necessary due to something Ahaz had done in chapter 28. If you turn back a page with me to verses 24 and 25. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Now, this was an outright denial of the foundation, the constitution of Israel, that they were the people saved by God, delivered into the land, that they were to respond to this grace of God, this redemption of God, by then giving themselves gladly to him in gratitude. And Ahaz had denied all that. And he had shut off the temple. And the temple was the place of God's presence, is the union of heaven and earth. It was the place of which God's promises were engraved on the people and they were reminded of them. It was the place where the precepts of God were taught and commended to the people. And he had closed all of this down. The presence, the promises, the precepts of the covenant. He had shut himself off from this. And he'd closed off the life of God from the people of Israel. Hezekiah sees this disaster and he seeks to restore it. He seeks to renew the people. And so he goes and he repairs the doors of the house of the Lord. He opened them. And friends, this is not simply a carpentry project going on here. There's a theological statement being made that Hezekiah was keen to restore the promises of God to Israel, to restore the presence of God to Israel, to restore the precepts of God to Israel. This is what he sought to do when he repaired the gates. And friends, this is what is key for us in the church today, is that we have to attend to the dwelling of God in our midst. Now, we learn that that is no longer on a particular piece of real estate. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul very helpfully tells us about the temple of God today, that it no longer resides on a particular patch of land. The union of heaven and earth is no longer there in Israel. But rather, the temple of God is the community of God gathered together. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you know that you're the temple of God? And the Spirit of God resides in you. And that you is a you plural, in which the community gathered together because of their faith in Jesus Christ is the living temple of God where the Spirit resides. And that's critical for us to understand that when we are to give our attention to the dwelling of God. It is the call to give our attention to the church, to what keeps us from this assembly and being a part of it, or what keeps us distracted from really entering into it, or what keeps it from being pleasing to God. That is where our attention and our direction and our effort and our strength is to be focused, because it is in giving attention to these things that the church lives in dependence And avoids that blatant move into idolatry or that subtle move into strength. And so this is what we're called to here as we see Hezekiah at the beginning of his reign renewing the temple of God. 
And friends, it's important for us to recognize that what the church claims as we gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day, Sabbath by Sabbath, that in this dwelling of God, as he lives among us and works among us when we come together in faith, that there's something that takes place here that you can't find anywhere else. There's a heightened sense of something past your quiet time. There's a heightened sense of something even past a good Bible study. There's a heightened sense of something that you cannot find at the Jags game or at the beach or on a good, lazy Sunday morning of sleeping in. That there is something that God puts on offer here that is unique as he dwells among us, as he lives and abides, as we come and we gather and we hear from him. And so one of the most important things is to then look at what does that encounter exactly look like? And Second Chronicles 29 leads us in the way about what this encounter, when we pay attention to the dwelling of God in our midst, what shape does that encounter take? There's four things that we're going to look at briefly here this morning. And the first that you see in verses 5 through 11, we see that there is an attentive listening to the word of God. Verses 5 through 11, Hezekiah gives a sermon to the priests. Scholars will call this a Levitical sermon in which he diagnoses the problem. He exposits the covenant and says we have broken the terms of it. And then you'll find in verse 10 and 11, he applies it. He says, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that this fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Now you're thinking, wow, that was a nice short sermon, and it'd be great if we could do that as well. Only six verses. Hezekiah here is the preacher, and he delivers the word of God, what the claim of God is on the church. And friends, when we encounter the Lord, we have to be attentive in listening. And over the years in our Christian life, it can become increasingly difficult because we domesticate the Bible and we kind of gain a knowledge and control over it, and we think that we don't need to listen to it. But the word of God and the voice of God and the spirit of God speaking in the scripture to us is a lifeline. It is a means of grace as we speak in our own theology. It is a means of God communicating with us in which he awakens us and disturbs us. He confronts us and he comforts us. He does all of these things. And so this dwelling of God with us pays very careful attention to hearing from God. As a young minister... I had fallen into the category of wanting to improve in my preaching. And I remember during that period asking many people to give me feedback on these first sermons that I was preaching in Memphis, Tennessee. And during that, I stumbled on an article uh, written about John Stott, who you, many of you may know. He passed away several years ago. He was the famous rector of All Souls Church in London. And Stott was once asked by a young preacher, Will you critique my sermon? The young preacher was excited that Stott was in attendance that day. He was in the congregation. And so prior to the service, he said, will you give me feedback? Stott went to his seat. The young preacher preached. And after the service, he comes up to him and he says, will you now give me the feedback about how I did? And Stott simply responded, 
son, I was not here today to listen to your sermon in that way. I was here as a disciple of Jesus to learn from him. This is an 85-year-old man at this point announcing that he needed to learn, that he needed to hear, that he needed to be intersected by the word of God, and he needed to be attentive and listening to it. And friends, that's the hallmark, one of the beginning places of what this encounter with God looks like. Now, the second piece we find in verses 20 through 24, we see there that there is also a humble confession that takes place. After being intersected and confronted by the word of God, what takes place in verses 20 through 24 is an assembly is drawn together, and there is confession of wrong. We find here a sin offering that is made. We go through the elaborate details of the different forms of sin offering, but then it finds a culmination in verse 24. And the priest slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. And we learn in verse 23, then the goats of the sin offering were brought to the king in the assembly and they laid their hands on them. And friends, this gives us the shape of any real encounter with God that there always is a confession and acknowledgement of our unworthiness, of our lack of qualification for it. And in the Old Testament, they had to place their hands upon the goat that was to be slaughtered on their behalf. And by that, they were imputing their guilt to the goat. And then he was slaughtered on their behalf, and this was the expiation, the removal of their sin. It was placed upon another. And in the New Testament, we learned that these goats and all the sacrifices were simply shadows of a substance that was to come, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That he is the one on whom our hands have been laid and our guilt has been imputed to him and he's received our curse, that he's been cut off on our behalf. He was judged and condemned for us. He was in our stead there on the cross. And he gives to us his righteous status. That he was the innocent one, the righteous one, who didn't deserve that, but he takes it on our behalf. And friends, this is why we can humbly confess. We can admit our wrong because our standing with God is not on, based on what we have done or even on not what we have not done. But our standing with God is rooted and grounded in what Christ has done for us. Taking our guilt, absolving us, pardoning us, giving us a righteous status in front of God. And that this authentic encounter with God, as we attend to the dwelling place of God, always involves this confession and acknowledgement and humility. Now, many people, no doubt, as we changed our worship services some three and a half years ago, one of the immediate questions was, why are we becoming all Roman Catholic? Some of you may remember those comments. Why are we confessing our sins every week? And why is this so important? It seems so, uh, so much like drudgery. And it seems so dreary. And friends, that's exactly the reverse logic of the gospel. That we confess our sins because of the grace and the mercy of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. Because we have an advocate and a mediator who we can lay our hands on. And who has, been, who has been handled for us and delivered over for us. And he handles our guilt. And friends, confession is the great freedom of the Christian life. To acknowledge that we've messed it up. To live in that humility as we encounter this God. And then he moves us from there. But that's the second piece of the encounter. 
Third, we find in verses 25 through 30, and here we see that there is praise with reverence and joy. If you look in verse 30, you find the summary after the sin offering, what takes place. Excuse me, in verse 28. The whole assembly worshiped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. And Hezekiah, the king, and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshiped. Several hallmarks of what takes place after the sin offering. There was gladness, there was song, there was celebration, there was bowing and prostration. And friends, the way to summarize what is taking place here is a joyful reverence, celebrating all that God has done to atone for their sins and that he has forgiven them and reconstituted them and is now commissioning them and sending them back out. The song emphasis here in 2 Chronicles is unmistakable, that the author of this says that the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets, that they were to use song in celebration and in rejoicing. And friends, this is the fundamental shape of the way that we continue to worship today. As we are confronted by God in our sins and then we're assured that we're forgiven, we move immediately to song. That is not just to give you a break. That is for you to express this posture in which you're then yielding yourself to God and giving thanks to him. And so we do so in joyous and reverent song with deep theological truths from the scriptures themselves in which we celebrate the ways and the works of God on our behalf. That's the shape of Christian worship. It has been this way even extending back into the Old Testament as the people came to the temple. One of the things that we do have to be careful, though, of as we talk about gladness and joy and as we talk about reverence, we're asked to hold together many different emotions in Christian worship. And the tendency today in the church is to go to a mono-emotionalism, that we want everything upbeat and happy, and we want one rhythm and one loud proclamation from the front that keeps everyone feeling good and centered and stable. And friends, what we find, though, is something more complex and complicated in the Bible. That there are appropriate times for grief and confession and repentance. And there are times for exuberant praise. And we want to be careful not to confuse energy and enthusiasm with spiritual earnestness. Now, amongst a group of Presbyterians, this is always helpful to say. Because we're not the most expressive sort. It's good to acknowledge it. We didn't get the label frozen chosen for no reason. The Presbyterian agreement or amen is the mm. Every once in a while you find a little sway going on during a hymn. I'm not here to encourage you past your own personal comfort levels. But there is a gladness and a joy that takes place in worship along with a reverence that speaks of a spiritual earnestness as we seek after God. We don't confuse that with energy and youthful enthusiasm. And so if you need to raise a hand, fine. And if you don't, that's fine too. 
The goal is for the spiritual earnestness to be expressed to God, for this profound gratitude, what God has done, not to hold back from that. And so there is praise that takes place in this encounter with God. The final piece we see in verses 31 through 36, we see that there is thanksgiving with offerings. Verse 31, then Hezekiah said, you have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And then skipping down to verse 35, besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. He there speaks of the awakening grace of God doing something unique. That very thing that we cannot domesticate or engineer, but God doing something unique to awaken the whole assembly. That they came with these sacrifices and offerings, these thanksgiving offerings, in order to consecrate themselves to the Lord. Now, in this series of offerings, it's important to understand what has taken place. There were the sin offerings, which were a type of burnt offering in which something was made to atone for sins. And then there was a whole other series of offerings that take place here in verses 31 through 36, in which these are offerings of thanksgiving to God. In these offerings is actually a total self-commitment. In many of the other offerings, you would receive something back of what you gave. You would receive something back to eat. But in these offerings, it was a total loss. It was simply giving back to God what he had first given to us. It was to express thankfulness and dependence. It was gratitude for all the grace that was given. It was celebrating the promises of God. And so freely the people were giving themselves to God in light of who he was. That he is a forgiving God who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. That he's done everything on our behalf through Jesus Christ to redeem us and call us and renew us and reawaken us. And friends, our lives are to be a continued sense of that offering, where we offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving with our lips and with our lives. That this is the way that we are now to follow after God. That this is not limited to a moment of conversion or to the early radical years of our Christian experience. But this is to follow week after week as we encounter God and we're confronted by him and as we hear his word and the gracious promises of God through Jesus come to us and we learn of a favor from God that we don't deserve. And then as we give God thanks for that, we're then to make offerings of thanksgiving, dedicating ourselves in both in our finances and in our lives, in our time, in everything that we are, we consecrate ourselves to God. And so this renewal service that has taken place here in verse 29 is often considered a covenant renewal service. And each week, that's what we as Christians assemble to celebrate and observe. A renewal of our covenant with God. To hear from him, to give thanks to him, to make prayers to him, to give offerings of thanksgiving and praise to him. 
And this is what's necessary for the church to sustain itself between those subtle defections towards strength and towards the brazen defection towards idolatry is a living faith that depends upon God, that encounters God, that interacts with Him and receives from Him, that keeps our orthodoxy from becoming dead and stale, that keeps our orthodoxy from becoming forgotten. A living encounter with the living Lord, Jesus Christ, who reigns over all things, and we trust is at work among us by His Spirit. That is how we see the life of the church maintain its foundation, stick true to its charter, and then to hear the commendation that this church, this people, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so let's live with that kind of abiding faith and dependence. That's what God calls us to. And so engage with him in this divine encounter that takes place every week. Don't allow it to become too normal or too ordinary. Know that he is here among us and at work. And may you join with the psalmist and say, Restore us, O God. Make your face shine that your people may be saved. That's the dependence we want. Let's pray. Father, when we see the ways that we can mess this up and that we can go into error, subtly and brazenly. We know that we're dependent upon you and we must be fed and nurtured by you in worship. And so, Lord, may we prioritize what it is to be assembled together, to be confronted by your word, to confess our sins, to be assured of salvation and grace that is ours, to give thanks to you. And Lord, would we continue to celebrate that you're truly in our midst and at work And would that living encounter define us week after week as we meet with you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing together.